1: Sunday Showcase, highlighting some of the best audio storytelling found anywhere. All right here on the Mutual Audio Network.
0: The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance.
2: We hope you enjoy the following presentation from the Narada Radio Company and 63 Audio. Celebrating a decade of quality audio drama...
3: Do you dare go down into the Cellar? Welcome to the Cellar Miniseries 3. Starring the Narada Radio Company and hosted by Cadavra Quivery.
0: Wonderful news to report. Your very own cadaver has been named to her neighborhood beautification committee. <laughs> yes, creeps. Oh, It's high time those neighbors of mine recognized my skills when it comes to cult evasion. <laughs> oh, not to mention... Agriculture. Oh. oh, yes, yes. Oh, just wait till I get started up there. Oh, they won't recognize the place when I'm done. <laughs> I did have to ask for special permission to work at night, though. Hmm. Oh, well, I'll tell you more later, because now... It's time to open my big book of gruesome tales and choose something superbly execrable. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes. Oh. <clears throat> oh. oh, here it is. <laughs> hmm. Tonight we are going underground. Yes, even deeper than my beautiful cellar. And yes, considerably deeper than the sub basement below the cellar where John Bell's offices are. <laughs> Oh, where is this place? Why, the subway tunnels of New York City, my pets. And simultaneously, with our downward travel, we're moving back in time to 1939. This story takes place in the control station of a particular stretch of tunnel in Manhattan, in the hours between dusk and dawn. Let's listen in. Shall we?
4: (laughs) Three One Express from the Bannery. On time to the minute, too. The last until nearly dawn. Excuse me a second. This is Inspector Craig. The 3-1 is on time and is expected to continue so. Keep alert at your posts and report any unusual occurrences to Station 1. That is all. Where was I? Oh, yes. So, how have you been? I'm glad you were able to come down and visit me. Been a long time, hasn't it? No, I don't get up to the surface very often, so it's nice when friends come down here. What's that? Oh, this over here. Well, this panel is the latest and greatest in subway doohickeys. (laughs) That's what one of my sergeants calls it, but it's got a fancier official name, of course. Anyway, what it does is tell us at a glance where a particular train is, what its next station is, and when it's expected to arrive. We've got infrared sensors placed in pairs, spaced approximately 25 yards apart, along five miles of subway tunnel. Yes, it's a regular little marvel. Hmm? How much did it cost? (laughs) Chum, you don't want to know. And if I did tell you, you'd just laugh. Just take it as astronomical, but believe it or not, the city passed it without so much as a grunt. It was one of the last things Mayor Jimmy Walker put up before his resignation in 1932. Yes, sir, he said. Gentlemen... He said to the finance board, Gentlemen, it doesn't matter what you think about me. This measure must go through. And it did, without a murmur of protest, like I said. Why, what's the matter, friend? You're looking odd all of a sudden. Well, I don't blame him for looking that way,
5: Inspector. It's impossible for anybody to believe that this system goes back to Walker's time.
4: Well, why don't you help me convince my friend here, Lieutenant? Okay, sure. Let me
5: see. Um... This actually started before Walker even had his first term as mayor. It goes back to World War days, maybe even before that. There was a train wreck, you see, that got passed off as a German spy plot to keep us from going in with the Allies. The newspapers howled bloody murder about alleged confessions and evidence they claimed they had. We let them howl, naturally. Why not? America was as good as in the war by that time, anyhow. And if we'd told the people of New York City what really wrecked that subway train, well, sir, the horrors of Chateau Thierry and Verdun and all the rest of them would have been nothing in comparison to the riots that would have erupted up there and down here.
4: People would go mad if they knew what was down here, far below. That's right, they'd go mad if they knew. And sometimes I wonder why we don't go mad down here. After all, we're the ones who do know and have to face the horror down here night after night and year after year. I think it's only because we don't really face it that we get by. Hmm? I mean, we never quite define the thing in our own minds objectively, you see. We don't speak of what we're guarding against by name. We just call it them or they. They are just something that has to be controlled, has to be fought. (laughs) I think if we ever did let our minds start brooding on what they are, that'd be it for us. The human psyche just couldn't stand it. Well, speaking of the human psyche and all, here's our in-house shrink. (laughs) Dr. Bloom, I'd like you to meet an old friend of mine. Pleasure. Can you give him a little history of our mental health discoveries?
1: Oh, be glad to. I've learned a lot down here, and I'd like to think it's advanced the field of psychology in many areas. You see, our men receive regular mental health screenings. But... In spite of this, there have been cases where three patrolmen went mad. Two of these received treatment in sanitariums for a while, and were eventually deemed healthy enough mentally uh, to work down here. And I'm happy to say they're serving here still. But the third one? Well, it's a pity. Dr. Bloom doesn't
4: like to tell this part. We had to hunt him down like a dog and shoot him. "'Yes, Doctor, we had to, or he'd have gotten one of us eventually.'
1: "'As much as I hate to admit it, Inspector Craig is correct. "'This was before we had the electric eyes placed, you see. Uh, "'The poor bugger was able to hide in the tunnel for days before we found him. "'The others would hear him howling as they patrolled the tracks, "'and they could see his eyes shining, just as their eyes do in the darkness.' (sighs) <sighs> so, we knew he was beyond hope. So when they finally ran the unfortunate fellow down, they shot him. Just like that.
4: We buried him down in the tunnel, too, and now the trains run over him where he lies.
1: Y- yes. What? Oh, no, no, we filled out our full departmental reports and got the consent of his relatives and and so on. We just couldn't run the risk of anybody above ground seeing his corpse before internment. You see, certain um, alterations had already begun. His face, well, the the change was just beginning, you understand, Uh, but it was quite unmistakable. And there were other changes, internal ones, that we didn't discover until we autopsied his body. (sighs) Sorry, Craig. I'd like to chat more, but... That's
4: fine, Dr. Bloom. You run along.
1: Nice meeting you.
4: He's a busy man. Yes, sir, we're always busy down here. 92nd Street, 98th, 101st... Now, beyond 120th Street, things are pretty safe. When the train reaches that point, you'll see a green light flash all clear. Of course, this doesn't mean absolute safety. It's just that this point is what we've established as the farthest reach of their activities. Hmm? Oh, I mean, they're creatures of habit. Of all the vast interlocking network of New York subway system, they keep to one relatively small stretch of tunnel. I mean, it's either habit or something supernatural some kind of mystic law that binds them to this particular locality. Who can say? Another point of view is that this stretch of tunnel is deeper than the others. Deeper, darker, wetter. And that's what they like. And we've got the electric lights and the patrol cars and three stations just like this one, with ten men each on duty from dark till dawn. Quite a little army, I'd say. Quite a little army, I command down here, in the night watches. What? Oh, you see, the whole point of it is, we have to be careful down here, all of us in the special detail. That's why we have such unusual working conditions. We wear police uniforms, of course, but we're not subject to ordinary police discipline. And with a salary that doesn't even compare. Why, a sergeant down here gets as much as an inspector does up there. Yes, indeedy. And we earn it, that we do. Hmm? Oh no, I can't tell you what my salary is. They made me promise never to disclose it when they hired me all those years ago from the National History Museum. I was Professor Gordon Craig in those days, eh? Instead of Inspector Craig, NYPD, i just returned from an African expedition where I had been studying gorillas with the explorer Carl Akeley. That's why they brought the thing to me, you see, to examine after that first big wreck in the subway. It had been found pinned down in the wreckage, screaming in agony from the bright lights. It was easy to surmise that it had died from the lights as much as from its injuries. Well, Haggerty here was with me in those days, and we worked on the thing together. Haggerty, old boy, tell my friend here what we did and what we found.
6: Oh, sure. Glad to. Well, they brought it to us at the museum because we were supposed to be the leading authority on apes. And we examined it. Believe me, we examined it. Six days and nights without sleep. You know, no scientist on this earth ever had a chance like this before, and we were making the best of it. We found out all there was to find out before we collapsed from exhaustion. Of course, long before that, we'd told them that the thing wasn't an ape. The structure of the creature was vaguely anthropoid, true enough, and the blood corpuscles were almost shockingly human. But you take a look at the head, and appendages just right for digging, and the muscular development? Well we had trouble believing that this creature had originally spawned on Earth. On top of that, it would have died above ground in half a minute like an earthworm in the sun.
4: And I'm afraid our report to the authorities ended up not helping much. I honestly expected them to order me up before a sanity hearing when I reported our findings. Instead, they offered me a position as the head of the special subway detail at a salary that was more in a month than I'd been getting in a year at the museum, and I brought Haggerty along with me as a captain.
6: <laughs> yes, it's been interesting, to say the least. An understatement. Hmm? Oh, well, you
4: see, they deduced much of the stuff of themselves without needing us to tell them. They had facts which they deliberately withheld from us, not wanting to influence our report. You see, they knew that the train had been deliberately derailed. The mutilated track proved that beyond all doubt. And the condition of the earth around the wrecked cars showed conclusively that extensive digging had taken place there. It was like, say, a gigantic molehill, only much worse. And while Haggerty and I had been busy analyzing stomach contents and bodily tissue to find out what our subject fed upon, the authorities had been burying, secretly and with the most elaborate precautions, the half-desiccated corpses of half a dozen men, women, and children who, well, they hadn't died in that wreck. Just try to picture what a shambles that tunnel must have been before the repair parties got there.
6: Mercifully, for those who hadn't been killed, there was total darkness. The poor devils who'd been merely injured never knew what horrors were going on around them. Oh, a few of them gibbered afterward about green eyes and claws that raked their faces, but of course that was all put down to delirium. There was one man. He'd gotten his arm chewed half off, but he never knew, never guessed. Surgeons amputated the remainder of his arm immediately, and when he came to in the hospital he was told that he'd lost the arm in the wreck. I imagine he's still walking the streets today, blissfully ignorant of what almost happened to him that night. You'd be surprised, my friend, how a thing can be hushed
4: up if you've got the whole city administration behind you. And by the time the crews had cleaned out the smashed train and removed the last victim, the special subway detail had gone into action, and it's been on duty ever since. For the last twenty some years. Inspector, can you sign this, please, sir?
6: I'll go back to what I was doing. Nice meeting you. See you later, Gordon.
4: Right oh. What is it, Sergeant? Oh, here I'll take it. Oh, I say, Sarge, you've been down here a while. Since before the modernization, I suspect. Yes, sir. Uh, about twenty-two years, sir. Well, you were right there in the thick of things then. Tell my friend, won't you, about how we roughed it back then? Oh yes, sir, yes,
7: sir. Uh, you see, sir, all of these modern doohickeys weren't available back then. We had a pretty bad time of things. All we had available to us was lanterns and guns and hand cars and five miles of gloomy tunnels below the city to patrol. A handful of puny mortals we was, sir, against hell itself. I'm happy to say, though, that there was no more wrecks after we took over. An accident or two, how can anybody prevent those? But we did everything we could think of, and we worked damn hard in those early days, pardon me French, sir. I remember once we blocked up both ends of the tunnel for a mile stretch and filled it up with poison gas. Then, another time, we dynamited, but neither one of those actions was anything more than useless. We just didn't have nothing to grab onto, physical-like. Sometimes on patrol in the darkness we'd hear sounds. Other times we'd glimpse what might have been eyes far off, and, and then there was times we'd find fresh earth piled up and only a moment before there'd been hard packed cinders and gravel. Every once in a while we'd fire our guns down the tunnel at some something whitish and only half seen. But there was only a kind of tittering laugh and answer. <laughs>
4: and a thousand times I was tempted to chuck the whole thing, to get back above ground to sunshine and sanity and forget the horrors of this mad underground world. But then I'd get to thinking about all those helpless men and women and children riding the trains unsuspecting through the dark with unknown ancient evils burrowing beneath them and, well, I couldn't go. I just couldn't go. I recognize that for a man of science this has been a mighty strange career. When I first went into museum studies, if you'd told me that one day I'd be, technically, a subway cop, I would have called you a liar. <laughs> but through the years, I've come to realize that it's been a socially useful career, perhaps more so than, than one writing textbooks that nobody bothers to read. For we've a science of our own down here, my men and I. The science of keeping millions of dollars of subway tunnels clean of horror— and of safeguarding the people who ride the rails in the world's largest city. What's that? Oh, well, we figured out that they must have been pretty numerous at one time. Ha! No wonder Peter Minuit bought this place so cheaply. You'd sell your home cheaply, too, if it were fairly overrun with monsters. But with civilization's arrival, they were driven underground. They burrowed down like worms to such depths that... Well, I don't want to hazard a guess just where, but there's a popular opinion that there's some fault in the basic bedrock of the island. Yes, and below that, some monstrous cavern with an opening that somehow lets them into the tubes. Oh, say, I think Captain Richter could tell us a little about that. Hello, Richter. Come over and meet an old friend of mine. I was just telling him about the supposed cavern under the bedrock. Richter studied geology and anthropology. He's a wonder. Thank you, Inspector. It's nice to meet you.
2: Yes, it took us a long time to find out where they had congregated and where they hunted, so to speak. At first, we thought we had to patrol the whole subway system throughout the entire city. We even had guards under the river and over in Brooklyn and Queens. There was a fear of them getting into the upper tunnels, perhaps even into the deserted streets of Manhattan during the pre-dawn hours. And half the police force down there in the old days... <laughs> <laughs> even the mounted force although God knows what a trained police horse would do if it came in contact with one of those things <laughs> but horses were faster than the hand cars we used then and could cover more territory hmm but as time went on we got things pretty well localized We now know that the danger is only in this stretch of tunnel, and even then, only during certain hours of the night. They never come up during the daytime hours, and we're not sure why, because it's always dark down here, always night, huh? But in the daytime hours, the the trains are constantly shuttling back and forth at two-minute intervals all day long. So there are only about four hours during the night when there's a lull. When the long miles of tunnel are lifeless, deserted, and silent. When anything, you know, could come and go at will and not be
4: seen. Sir? Exactly right, Richter. Thank you. Thank you, Captain. And so you see, it's only during these late night hours that we really worry. It's only during these hours, the ones we're in right now, that we're vigilant and ready. (laughs) It's no longer warfare, though, not really. We hunt them now, not the other way round, And sometimes we'll capture instead of kill. Yes, a half dozen times we've set up a sort of underground Bronx zoo, although it'd be more accurate. To describe it as a living chamber of horrors, I suppose. Haggerty and I have cages in our laboratory, and we've had times when a really stubborn skeptic on the city council has been brought down here to see what we have on display. Once they saw one of them, they were convinced, and we never got any more argument about funds. I mean, they couldn't possibly speak of their experience afterward, could they? (laughs) But in reality, it's hard on us, keeping the beasts in cages on display. Being so close to them has such a negative effect that eventually we just have to kill them and dispose of them. What's that? Oh, well, it's not so much their appearance or what they eat. There's a kind of cosmic horror that the things exude that is quite frankly beyond description. In the end, to keep us from going insane, we have to execute them and return the corpses to their friends and neighbors. (sighs) But caging them has allowed us to study them and their habits. Eventually, someone will take my place, of course, and whoever that is will find two large volumes full of notes so he can carry on the fight when I'm gone. Because, and well, we all agree on this, the fight will never end. There's no possibility of ever wiping them out. All we can do is hold our own. The fight will go on as long as this section of tunnel is occupied. (laughs) Nobody on the city council would dream of abandoning $20 million worth of subway tunnels just because they're infested with... Excuse me. Craig, what's that? It's 79th Street? How many men are you sending? Fine. Keep me posted. Strange. Very strange indeed. The first in months. And tonight, now, while we're talking about it. (laughs) It makes you wonder, eh? About the telepathic powers these creatures are said to have.
7: That's riot car number one, sir. It went by too fast to count, but it had six men aboard. It looks like a regular railway hand car, but it's been souped up by our engineers with a top speed of 80 miles an hour. It could cover the entire sector in five minutes if it had to. Another one left on 5th Street at the same time
4: with machine gunners aboard. Those two cars will meet somewhere along the tunnel's length with the uh, disturbance between them. Come over here, we can listen in. We station microphones every hundred feet along the tunnel. A small fortune to install, but it has allowed us to make great strides in our efficiency. Ah, there they are. Microphone number two nine zero, approximately one thousand feet below one of the busiest corners of the city, even at this hour of the night. Listen, hear that? Ah, there we are. At least one of them, or possibly more.
2: They're not scratching in the gravel. They have no idea that they're broadcasting their presence, and they're unaware that from both directions, death is sweeping down upon them. Just another moment. Ah, hear that? That means they've sighted one of the cars. They're fleeing along the tunnel now.
4: Yes, and now they've heard the other car. They're trapped between them. Ah, uh, yes, you devils. We've got you now. They've switched on the portable spotlights. It works on them like heat lamps. The light burns them like fire. They're so accustomed to the dark. That's right. Shriek. Shriek and die, you beasts of hell. <laughs>
7: Inspector! Please,
4: sir! What are you looking at, you damn fools? Well.
1: Gordon, uh, you need to calm down. Think of the men!
4: Yes. The men. Give me a moment, men. Just. let me alone for a moment. Yes, sir.
6: Yes, sir, of course. course. We'll be here. Do it all the time you
4: need. Say it, my friend. Don't say it. I know. I know. I've felt the change coming on me for a long time now. It's coming over all of us, bit by bit. Why do you think we keep the light so dim in here? But it's the worst with me because I've been here the longest. That's why I never go above ground anymore. Not even on leave. <clears throat> Twenty-five years, man. Twenty-five years. Twenty-five long, dragging years down here in a hell of my own creation. It was bound to leave a mark, but I thought it'd be merely spiritual, only on my psyche. I was prepared for that, but for the love of heaven. If I'd for one instant imagined what it was to be. Worse, absolutely worse than I could have imagined. And it is spiritual, you know, as well as physical. I get cravings sometimes down here in the night's loneliness. Thoughts and desires that would shock you to your depths if I were to whisper them to you. They'll get worse, I know, until at last I run amok in the tunnels, like that poor fellow Bloom told you about. My men have orders to shoot me down like a mad dog when that happens. No, sir. No, 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 don't Don't say say that. that.
6: No, don't say that, sir.
4: Don't still I admit I find it interesting. Even though I'm doomed, this whole situation intrigues me. Scientifically. Because don't you see? It shows how they may have come about, must have come about, at the dawn of creation. Never quite human, even as low or lower than the primeval beasts. And then, when driven underground, they retrograded more and more, century after century, just as we poor souls down here are retrograding from the very contact with them, until at last, none of us will ever be able to walk above ground, to see or feel the sun among our fellow men."
5: Express from the Bronx, safe and sound, her occupants ignorant and unsuspecting of how they were safeguarded, of how they'll always be safeguarded. <sighs> but at what cost?
7: At what terrible cost? The 415 Express. That means it's dawn in the city up there, the great city beginning to
4: wake. Well, there's no dawn for us down here, of course. There'll never be a dawn for poor lost souls down here in the eternal dark, far below.
0: I hope you enjoyed our story, because I have some sad news to relate. Those other people on the neighborhood beautification committee and I, well, we did not exactly see eye to eye on what constituted beautification. I mean, they thought we should plant roses and daisies and other hideous things. And after all the time I'd spent pre potting stinkweed and belladonna, I mean, the nerve, the unmitigated gall. (sighs) Ah, well, die and learn, I always say. (laughs) Die and learn. Our story for tonight was called Far Below, a short story by Robert Barber Johnson, first published in 1939 and adapted, produced, and directed by Pete Lutz. Oh, you may be interested to learn that in 1953, readers of Weird Tales magazine voted far below the best story ever published in that magazine. (laughs) Oh, and so ends our third miniseries, Fiends. (laughs) Please come back next year to see me again, won't you? (laughs) And until you do, Remember your dear departed cadaver. And please, children, don't take candy from stranglers. <laughs> <laughs>
3: You have been listening to Far Below, episode 5 of the Sellers third miniseries. It was produced and directed by Pete Lutz. The theme was composed by Tom Rory Parsons. Our cast consisted of the following players. Pete Lutz as Craig. Dana Gonzalves as the Lieutenant. Paul Arbisi as Dr. Bloom. Nick Womack as Haggerty. Chuck Wilson as the sergeant, Les Marsden as Captain Victor, and Sarah Light and Larry Cashin as the voices of them. Additional music by Dr. Ross Bernhardt. This is Trevor Rines speaking. With this production, we end our third miniseries. We hope you enjoyed it, and will join us again next year when Cadavera rises again in The cellar. Cellar.
6: This
2: is Mutual.
1: Now you seem to me to be a connoisseur